The SGGQA podcast is brought to you in part by Me Audio. So here's the deal. If you've ever seen me in a live stream or in an interview or some other kind of video, you've probably seen me wearing some fancy earbuds. For the last couple years, my work buds have been almost exclusively from Me Audio. Excellent drivers, fantastic accessories, and both my wife and I had our ears scanned by the folks at Me Audio for custom molded ear tips. Super comfy. The MX line of Pro in-ear monitors is one of the easiest lineups to understand, starting at $60 and built around actual professional use. Detailed sound and durable construction, but also with some fun options like customizable faceplates. Even if you're not working on stage or in studio, Pro solutions like these are fantastic audio options, and they don't need to break the bank. And the company also supports a lineup of consumer gear with options for true wireless and noise-canceling Bluetooth earbuds, adapters for TVs to stream your audio to nicer headphones, and headsets for kids to help control the volume on fresh, developing ears. I can't stress that last one enough. We have to start kids out with healthier listening habits. It's a great combo, high-quality audio gear built by a team of folks with recording-grade use in mind, but at consumer-friendly prices. But of course, I can do you one better. If you shop the kit at meaudio.com and use promo code SOMEGADGETGUY at checkout, you can save an additional 10% over their already competitive prices. Once again, meaudio.com, M-E-E, audio.com. Shop some fun kit, promo code SOMEGADGETGUY at checkout, 10% off. Keep your ears and your wallet happy at the same time. I want to thank the folks at Me Audio for hooking up the promo code. Now, let's get on with the show. All right. I believe this means we are live, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, tech fans of all shapes and sorts and sizes and persuasions. Welcome to another episode of the Monday Morning Tech Chat Show on the SGGQA podcast channel. I'm Juan Carlos Bagnell, a.k.a. Some Gadget Guy, uh, the SGG of this. It's basically the worst podcast name in podcast tech coverage, but the QA that's the important part because we like to make this a more interactive conversation, really chat out these headlines, the news block, um, really get into covering tech, not just reacting to a headline, but following up on these stories as they evolve over time. And I'm already seeing an incredible crew of people here in the live chat that are ready to do just that. Um, I want to do a, a couple special sh- shout outs here. We've got uh, Twin Folk and Rico Man both subscribing on Twitch. Thank you so much for supporting uh, production on this podcast. I really appreciate it. But I'm seeing Onscon, Dave Burns, Farhan, uh, Tech Boys in the chat, PP Joker, Bray Gray. Uh, who am I missing? I know I'm missing. Al was in there, Gregory, Bryant Billing. We've got a good crew ready to jump in right now. And uh, as, as we always start off, I just would like to say uh, happy Monday. I like to hold my podcast on a Monday just so we can get up to speed. We can start off our tech week. And maybe news broke over the weekend, or we can just take a little bit more time to kind of suss out how we feel about what happened last week. And, and uh, if you follow the other conversations and the other podcasts that, um, that are kind of floating around, uh, for example, Best of Our Week with my buddy TK Bay, which we usually do on Thursdays or Fridays, I feel like we're in kind of a, 
especially in North America, we're in sort of the tech lull before the February storm. And uh, there's going to be a lot of stuff coming out in February, and we're all kind of we're all kind of slow playing. We're not we're not trying to get too hyped, but that doesn't mean that there hasn't been a lot of tech shenanigans happening, a lot of tech news, um, and we want to kind of keep abreast of that before some major product announcements come out. And so that's going to be part of our lineup right here. We have a heavier news block this week. We do have some things to chat about, like information on the OnePlus 11 and the new OnePlus Buds has been coming directly from the company ahead of their February launch. So there's a, there's a lot. There's a lot that we can kind of chew on. We can kind of gnaw on before we get there. Uh, I do want to get this set up here. And uh, I, I'm going to say let's play this one conservative. Uh, conservatively? <laughs> so... <laughs> what I meant to say was we can play this one kind of clean. It's already 9.03. I hope everybody had a lovely weekend. Uh, our, our weekend was spent mostly taking down Christmas decorations. Um, it, our, our goal is always, can we, can we pack up Christmas before Valentine's Day? So we, we made it with room to spare this year. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm like off my normal patter right now. So uh, why don't we jump into some housekeeping? We can knock that out, uh, and then from there we can uh, uh, we can get into the news block. Um, uh, I just wanted to, uh, a couple more shout outs here, real quick. Jman150, Gary the Fireman saying howdy geeks. I love seeing you in the chat, Gary. You got Brian Glay saying good morning. Control Alt Clay. We got Mr. Barry Johnson. Mr. Barry Johnson, who you should absolutely be following right now if you want to keep up with what's going on with premium tier Vivo, as he is rocking that X90 Pro Plus. Uh, Let me get this out of the way there. Okay. Um, Oh, PP Joker, another college semester has arrived. So, uh, well, I'm glad to see you in the chat, because obviously this is just as important as your um, studies. Uh, We've got Gary the Fireman. What's up? Gary the Fireman has uh, gifted Tier 1 subs to Control-Alt-Clay and uh, uh, Anado32 and has subscribed with Prime. So Gary the Fireman has been subscribed for 33 months and has uh, been gifting gift subscriptions that entire time. Thank you so much, Gary. The, the help, the support, the, the just, just the good positive vibes, man, has, has greatly been appreciated during the run of this wacky little podcast. So, um, some housekeeping. Let me go into a screen share real quick. I want to start off. Uh, I don't do tons of these tutorials just because I feel like they start to get really repetitive. Um, Podcasting on your phone, a starter guide on mobile recording. I think I should change that to a starter guide for mobile. I'm real bad at titles and thumbnails and stuff. I need to make that snazzier. Like, ditch your laptop. It's been killed by your phone for podcasts. I wish I had a sneery tech bro font for YouTube. So, like, you you could only read it in, Nuh-uh, bro, your thing just got wasted. It's garbage. Like, I need that voice, but in a font. What what font, because, uh, you know, like, I'd be inclined to say papyrus. Um, what font do you think would be sneery tech bro? Drop me a comment. <laughs> and control out clay with a silly face, one. But, like, with, like, 
like some outdated hand gesture of radicalness because I'm you know millennial on cusp of Gen X. Yeah, I don't know what I'm doing with my hands. Uh, apologies to anyone who's listening to the audio replay on this. Um, yes, uh, podcasting on your phone. So what I tried to do is three tiers, sort of like just starting out with the basics, how to record audio, and then adding some accessories, some microphones, and some apps that can make that better. And uh, you can catch that, that video. I enjoyed making that video. That video has been one of the worst performers on my channel in the history of me producing content on YouTube. Uh, Next up, I wrote out a review on the NeuraTrue Pro True Wireless Earbuds. Now, if you are uh, a regular on this podcast, you might remember a couple months back, one Mr. Jeff at El Jefe Reviews sent a little care package to me, and this is the NeuraTrue Pro. Um, Again, I cannot thank Jeff enough for sending these my way. These are top-tier, high-premium-quality, true-wireless Bluetooth earbuds. Um, Have just been been an excellent experience. I demoed them live during the setup on the podcast and actually had kind of a tingle moment, kind of like a George Takei, oh my, kind of moment. And uh, then... I mean, literally the day after I played with these, my kind of on-again, off-again ear infection raged. And I've spent the last two months, like, not being able to put anything into my ear canals. And I finally, I, did, I went to an urgent care, did rounds of, like, flushing and, and like, hydrogen peroxide. Then had to go to a proper ENT. They were talking otolaryngologist surgical consult. For a short period of time. Basically, my ears are just full of scar tissue from when I was a kid. I used to have a lot of ear infections then, too. I probably should have had tubes in my ears, but it was just, like, right on that border. Like, my parents kept getting these recommendations, like, maybe he should, maybe we'll wait, maybe he should, maybe we'll wait. And I never really ended up doing tubes in my ears. Um, but... Uh, Later now in life, you know, if I'm taking a shower and I tilt my head kind of funny, like water will build up in there and it takes a day or two for that pressure to relieve itself. So I had an ENT in my ear with tiny little picks and suction tools to like finally clear a blockage that was causing inflammation that was exacerbating these ear infections. And I just got my clean bill of health that I'm kind of okay again. They're still really raw. Because there was a lot of action going on in my ear. Um, But I'm back to a point where if I put an IEM-style ear tip in my ear, it's not immediately painful. So we'll call that progress. Short story, incredibly long and disgusting. Um, I finally was able to listen enough on the NeuroTrue Pro to feel like I could competently review them. That review is now on SomeGadgetGuy.com. I don't want to make my job sound like it's anything, you know, like, exceptional, right? Like, my uncle was a firefighter. The stories he tells about, like, lugging gear up flights of stairs to save people's lives. Totally different conversation than what I do for a living. I just do want to point out that when we talk about the biology of tech, people don't ever... People who watch tech videos, tech reviewers... You can get a sense of who's really putting these products to the test and who's kind of just casually like poking at it for an hour and then writing their honest, earnest opinions. 
I have psoriasis, I have scarring in my ears, I have inflammation issues, I have the beginnings of psoriatic arthritis. When I'm testing a fitness tracker, I wholly expect that I'm probably gonna have flare-ups just for the different materials that they use on their watch strap. When I'm playing with different ear tips on different IEMs, if I'm doing too many headphone reviews back to back to back, I assume I'm gonna have an ear infection just because I'm constantly changing what's going on and my body isn't adapting to that one material. It's one of the reasons why you've been seeing me use bone conduction so much, especially on like best of our week, where if I need to hear TK, I'm not putting anything in my ears, I'm using um, an Aftershocks headset. So again, my job is not exceptional. My job isn't deserving of any kind of like consideration that we would give to like a first responder, an EMT, a firefighter, some, you know, like I'm trying to keep things in perspective, but I do want people to understand like really testing this stuff and feeling like you've used it enough that you, you can talk about the lived in experience takes a toll in really unforeseen ways. <laughs> it's super messy. Well, I'm gonna take a drink of coffee. <laughs> Barry Johnson, you know, those earnest, honest opinions after five whole minutes of use. <laughs> Which again, I have to shout out Barry's work because Barry got the Vivo X90 Pro Plus and he's been talking about it, but it wasn't like he rushed out to make a first impressions five minutes setup review. <laughs> you know, like how can I feed the algorithm a bunch of meaningless words? All right, uh, wrapping up housekeeping here. And this is one that I'll probably talk about and ramble about. You know what? Let's ramble about it now. So this is the one of the other major videos that I put out. Sorry, Chief, there are no Steam Deck killers out now. And I was going to save this for the gadget block, but we can just get it out of the way right here. Um, I am so tired of the lazy trend of calling every new thing that comes out a killer of an old thing. I love the Steam Deck. I believe the only appropriate response to calling the Steam Deck a Nintendo Switch killer is to roll your eyes so hard that you run the risk of dislocating an eyeball. The Steam Deck is not a Switch killer. That, that should be really easy. <laughs> like, I don't own a Nintendo Switch. I, I kind of always wanted to, never really jumped on board. Jumped on board the Steam Deck. So glad I did. It is the right gaming peripheral product for me. Nintendo Switch now increasingly a less interesting buy now that I'm playing with something else portable that has some infrastructure distribution and repairability. I'm, I'm good. I, I don't feel like I need to jump on the Nintendo Switch uh, game. I mean, the only thing that makes me a little sad is my daughter does like playing Mario Kart and there isn't as good a kart racer for PC. Just doesn't exist. So, with every new, now that Valve and Steam have kind of blown open this idea of a compact gaming PC portable, that, that I mean, it's not small, but it's way easier to pack than like a, a big spec gaming laptop. We're hearing about some of these other boutique players that are making other types of gaming hardware. You know, if they're Intel chips or if they're more powerful AMD chips, and every single one that hits Kickstarter or Indiegogo is being slapped with this label, Steam Deck killer, better than the Steam Deck, oh my gosh. And I, I just feel like we need to put more respect on the designation killer. A killer needs to be 
something that is so significantly better in every demonstrable way at a similar price tier in a similar generation of manufacturing that it makes the first product not viable. <laughs> so if you're telling me that there's a new gaming portable out there and it's got a more powerful AMD chip and it has an OLED screen and it's only two and a half times the price of the Steam Deck, you don't have a Steam Deck killer. You have a good premium Steam Deck competitor, but that doesn't mean I'm going to make a, 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 a foregone conclusion recommendation that you put the Steam Deck down and you get this other boutique, only sold through Indiegogo, limited run, maybe there's 2,000 backers for the product, and in six months that company is going to move on to making a different product product. None of that means killer to me. You cannot kill the Steam Deck until you have similar distribution, similar repairability, an open community that can mod and create their own accessories. It's not locked down to anything proprietary. They're, they're putting their parts on iFixit so that you can repair or upgrade or improve your Steam Deck. That's the whole Steam package. You've got to kill all of it to make a Steam Deck killer. Just making something more powerful and it's more expensive <laughs> doesn't kill the Steam Deck. And I've had so many cranky gamer bros. Nuh-uh, I a Neo. Nuh-uh, when something for Max GDP something. There was, again, like two others. I can't even remember the names of the company. You go to Indiegogo and it's like, this was a successful Indiegogo, Indiegogo campaign, and it had 600 backers. 600 units of this AMD 6800 APU thing. <laughs> that's, that's a bad weekend of sales for a Steam Deck. That's not going to kill the Steam Deck. And so, uh, and Onscon is, is, is kind of tapping into this too. I believe the Steam Deck is a killer product. I believe the Steam Deck is not a Nintendo Switch killer. I believe it's a gaming laptop killer. In its first year, with only real distribution to, what, North America and the UK? Someone correct me if I, if I have that wrong, because I don't believe the Steam Deck has broader distribution. Legit. I mean, you can buy it from scalpers and gray market and all that, but... I mean, where Steam is actually selling it directly to consumers is in North America and in the UK. With basically two major markets, in its first year, the Steam Deck as one singular product, three tiers of product, but it's one thing. It's not like an Aya Neo 2 and an Aya Neo Next and an Aya Neo Air. They have like five different consoles out right now. The Steam Deck is one thing. And one thing for parts, one thing for repairs, one thing for accessibility, one thing for accessories. There aren't multiple versions of the Steam Deck. It has now cracked to roughly 0.7% of the total global gaming laptop market. Over 2022, the gaming laptop market was worth roughly $12 billion. I think I have that right. The Steam Deck is now on track to sell 2 million units. I cannot think of another new-to-the-market company that has cracked 1% faster <laughs> than Valve has with their very first iteration of a PC portable gaming handset. Uh, 
Like, that to me is shockingly successful. So for every permutation of a gaming laptop, the Steam Deck is now closing in on 1% of the total global gaming laptop market. And it's only really selling to a couple of regions. If, if you do the math on what is a fun, capable, I'm obviously not super powerful, but a fun, capable gaming experience in sort of a Nintendo Switch vibe where you can, you can plug it into a TV or another monitor. I do that on the regular. $400 is your starting price? Like, that's pretty good. So if you're looking at like a current generation gaming laptop, obviously that's going to be more powerful. Are you really going to want a game on that in all of the different ways that you can game on a Steam Deck? I think increasingly over the next two years, we're going to see this portable handheld market expand. NVIDIA is in the game. Uh, L, uh, Logitech was, was in the game. They had their cloud player. I will, I will be shocked if over the next three years we don't see some kind of competing idea from Asus, like an ROG handheld, because they have their ROG phone. Um, as, as we start kind of expanding this market, I think a lot of consumers are going to say, well, do I really want to buy the OP laptop or do I want to buy like a more reasonable sort of portable computer and then have a gaming handheld to go along with it? And the main reason we're going to be having that conversation over the next three years is because of the Steam Deck. The Steam Deck has blown open PC gaming in a very specific way. And now other companies are going to piggyback on that, and we're going to see some more competition. That's what we would want to see. <laughs> McCorcoran, yeah, a proper entry-level uh, gaming laptop with dedicated graphics, etc., is not a small investment. Last few years, the barrier to entry for PC gaming has gotten higher until the Steam Deck. <laughs> no, bro, I got like a three-year-old gaming laptop with like a GTX 1060, and that's like more powerful, and I got it for like $800, and so if you do the math on a new Steam Deck, and you do upgrades to it, and get accessories, it's basically the same price, and the gaming laptop is more powerful. So many gaming bros. <laughs> I had people was like, no, the Steam Deck runs Linux, and that's terrible for gaming, and you're like, I'm playing games on it. I don't think I could care. I, I'm not installing Windows on my Steam Deck because developers are supporting Proton, and this is really good. <laughs> it's so good. So, um, yeah. yeah. It's pretty good. Um, that, that was going to be a part of the gadget block later on, because I put out this video. I, I, I'm obviously biased because I bought a Steam Deck. <laughs> I had two comments that were literally that. You're just biased. One of them literally was, you're just bias. Y-O-U-R, just, B-I-A-S. I'm assuming that person's first language is not English. And I, I commend them for communicating an idea, even if the idea was hilariously terrible. <laughs> but it's just so funny. <laughs> like... Uh, people so desperately want some notion of like performance, and I, and I I commend that. Again, I'm not saying that if you pick up an I and Neo, it's not going to be more powerful. But I'm looking at these numbers, man, and it's it's like I can spend two hundred dollars more 
over like a top of the line, like the Steam Deck that I bought, the 512 gig version of the Steam Deck. And it's going to have an OLED, and it's going it, it's going to outperform it by like 10 to 15 percent in so many of these games. 10 to 15 percent is like four to six frames per second. Now, if you're running a game and it's struggling to keep up at 30 frames per second, that's pretty good. That's going to nudge you over to 30 FPS gaming. So many of the games that I'm playing on the Steam Deck are totally comfortable in the 40 to 60 range. So I'm good. And in a lot of the places where I would be apt to play on my Steam Deck, I have reasonably good data. And I still have my Game Pass subscription. (laughs) And it plays really great. Guardians of the Galaxy at 60 frames per second on Game Pass looks really good. I I, I really haven't been bothered by this need to have like 15% more performance. Because it's not... It's not coming with 15% more performance and 15% better battery life. The only thing I want from a Steam Deck for a future iteration is an OLED and better battery life. The Steam Deck 2, I'm hoping, is just going to be that. And maybe change the chassis design so that it's a little bit friendlier to crack open. Like, you'll see regularly on the Steam Deck subreddit that someone tries to open up their Steam Deck and they forgot to take out their SD card. And the, the, the case will crack and split your SD card if you don't pull the SD card out before you start your disassembly. I mean, that's the kind of... The the Steam Deck is already so modular, repairable, openable. That's our concern. (laughs) Is that if you keep your SD card in before you start taking it apart, you'll crack your your, your SD card. All I want to see are those kinds of refinements. I genuinely do not care right now if it's so much more powerful that I get four extra frames per second in a game that I'm probably not going to play. So I'm feeling pretty good. (laughs) Again, as a recommendation, if you've got $400 and you're looking for a really good portable gaming experience, Nintendo Switch and Steam Deck are really comfy to shop. And you know you're not getting the most powerful machine that can fit into a backpack, but you know you're getting one of the best ecosystems of products looking at those two options. Oh, and Dustadore is here now saying, good morning, peoples. Yeah. Um, Farhan uh, replying to Gormlord, Valve going with Linux instead of Windows takes some real bravery, but it also helps with price. As you're a manufacturer, you're not having to license Windows. I'm a big Microsoft fan. I'm a big gaming PC fan. Like, I, I, I love building machines, and Windows is my preferred operating system for when I'm building a beefy workstation. But all of that is money. And if you're telling me I can have, like, a significant amount of the gaming landscape, but on Proton, and it's not going to cost me more, in fact, it's going to cost me less... <laughs> then I'm good with that. I'm happy to spend less and have a similar gaming experience. Um, Yeah, and Gormlord, I I, I believe that that was accurate. Gormlord says, I believe they said the next Steam Deck will have the same specs, just some design changes. As far as I know from Steam Valve PR the performance is going to be similar. It's going to be a similar tier of performance, but they're looking to improve battery life and make some minor design changes. And that's all Steam Deck 2 is going to be. And I think that's comforting to say, like, 
Well, if you're jumping in and you're looking at this product, there's longevity. If you buy a Steam Deck today, you don't have to feel like next year your purchase is immediately obsolete. And I feel like that's that's a good marketing presence to have with such a new product. Is it, it, it prevents that. What was it? The Osborne? Someone old like me. What was the old PC company? Osprey? Osborne? I want to say it was something like that. Man, my brain is totally Swiss cheese right now. Basically, they came out with like this portable PC, which back in the day was like a, a briefcase of luggage suitcase computer. And while they were selling Generation 1, their reps were out there talking up of all of these amazing things that they were going to do for Generation 2. So no one bought Generation 1 and the entire company full. Osborne, the Osborne effect. Thank you, Dave Burns. I'm not saying you're older than me, but you at least have a functional memory for random computer trivia. Um, They oversold Gen 2 and no one bought on Gen 1. I think it's pretty clear the safer play is to more reasonably manage expectations into Generation 2, and that gets people way more comfortable with Steam Deck, uh, Steam Deck 1. And then we know that Steam Deck 1 is going to have similar performance to Steam Deck 2, and Valve and Steam never make a Gen 3 of anything, so you're good. That's, that's the tier of performance they're going to have forever, because we'll never get Steam Deck 3. <laughs> It'll always be Steam Deck 2. Steam Deck 2 will be sold till the end of time until you get Steam Deck Alex 20 years later. (laughs) Sorry, it was the worst joke I could think of in the moment. Excuse me. Sorry, I coughed in the mic there. All right, moving right along. Why don't we knock out... um, That was housekeeping, but I moved that purposely. That was going to be a part of the gadget blog, just to talk about gamer bros and the headaches of reading through numerous bad take, hot take comments on that video. And so many of them just regurgitating what I said in the video, but calling me wrong. So I know they were only reacting to the title. Sorry, Chief, there are no Steam Deck killers out there. And then they're like, well, yeah, but if, I mean, if you count, like, distribution and the money and how inexpensive it is, then, yeah, there's no Steam Deck. But you're biased, and what you need to understand is there's another handheld that's more powerful. And you're like, I said that in the video. We're playing the game of did you watch the video, and I think you failed. So there you go. So we won't have to talk about that in the second half of the podcast. <laughs> see Roth got it Roth, Roth understood where I was going because uh, I'm old <laughs> half-life valve jokes it's great it's great I mean if we can't laugh at the companies we like then what are we doing because moving into the news block I wish I had bumpers you know like I could push a button and then like news block and like music and graphics come out I'm really bad at doing podcasting I wanted to highlight this trend um, specifically through one company, but we're seeing basically every major tech brand now just, they have to tighten their belts and they have to really knuckle down and all their employees got to cut back. We got to get them back in the office, which is going to be more expensive to run the offices again. But at the same time, we also need to save money and enhance shareholder value on earnings and revenue. So I guess we just got to lay people off. And we're seeing thousands of layoffs across the tech industry, tens of thousands of layoffs. And you know what? I I really feel 
that this is bad management. I've, I've mentioned this on a couple previous uh, episodes of this podcast, but to me, it doesn't sound like the employees are under-delivering. Over two years of global pandemic and work-from-home initiatives, we've seen this labor force of, of tech developers and coders and engineers step up to the challenge, and all of these tech companies have been wildly successful. At some point, we had to expect that the pandemic would shift into a more open endemic and that business would change. These products and services would be utilized in one way while we were all locked up at home and they would be utilized in different ways as we would open things up again. So these companies have never made more money in the history of their brands and they're still demonstrating growth today. They're just not growing as fast. If you look at Microsoft and Google and Apple and Facebook, their quarterly returns, they're missing expectations that were still built on the models of growth during the pandemic, but they're still growing. And that to me is the infuriating part of all of this messaging. We've really got to tighten our belts and we didn't account for this change in the marketplace. That is terrible leadership. It has nothing to do with the employees. If you're the CEO of Google and you're telling people that you could not predict that someday there would be a market correction where Google products and services would be used differently than during the peak of the pandemic, you are a terrible CEO. You deserve no bonuses. You deserve no additional income or stock options. You should give your money back to the company and back to shareholders. You have demonstrated that you cannot fulfill your role in enhancing shareholder value for that company, for managing the interests of that company. To pass the buck on to the employees is vile. It's really a bad look. And it gets even worse when we look at all of the celebratory back padding. Because all of these companies have never made more money in the history of their companies, and they're still making more money, and they're celebrating all of those victories on the backs of their employees. So the one that I want to highlight specifically is from a company I very much like, (laughs) but let me tell you, I'm not very happy with their executive leadership. I'm super, I'm super thrilled with their individual divisions. I really like their hardware team. I really like their gaming team. I really like their accessories team, and I use a lot of their software and services. Their management is really cheesing me off right now, and that company is Microsoft. So this comes by way of Business Insider. Um, Sindhu Sundar wrote this up at Business Insider on January 19th. Microsoft held an invite-only Sting concert for execs in Davos the day before the company announced layoffs of 10,000 employees. Executives at Microsoft treated themselves to a private performance from Sting. I'm a big Sting fan. I love Sting and the Police. This this happened on Tuesday. On Wednesday, they cut 10,000 jobs all under this really thoughtful guise of the leadership team and, oh, it hurts us so much to do this and Oh, the employees, they're the lifeblood of our company, but we've got to tighten our belts. Well, the executives are not tightening their belts. The executives are holding private concerts with the musician. I, 
if anyone out there can get me sort of an over-under, how much does a private Sting concert go for? Like, if you could book Sting to play for a little group of executives, how much would that cost? <laughs> like, right now, we're talking about companies that are like, we've really got to scale back at our cafeteria, and oh, we got to buckle down. And the executive branch at Microsoft is like, let's go to Davos. <laughs> Message in a bottle, private jets. <laughs> So I'm not a raging pinko commie, but moves like this keep nudging me in the direction of seizing the means of production. <laughs> so I just feel like that's a bad look. And I really feel we should call out the bad look. Because when Microsoft laid off these 10,000 employees, there were a whole bunch of articles about like, oh, you know, letting your employees go and handling layoffs with dignity. And you're like, you know what? I'm not buying it. I'm really not. Again, these companies have never been more profitable. They should be looking to fill a war chest to handle the ebb and flow of tech over more than a month and more than a fiscal quarter And instead, we're seeing the worst aspects of fiscal quarter capitalism. There's no long-term view when you're cutting 10% of your staff. That's not a long-term investment in the health and sustainability of the company. That is a short-term move to generate shareholder interest and fulfill some notion of line goes up. And then the next fiscal quarter, they'll, they'll have to scramble to find some other gimmick to juice up those stock numbers just so that shareholders will be appeased instead of going to shareholders and saying, Hey, there's going to be a changing expectation on uh, our financials this next month. And we're still going to make more money. (laughs) Wow. So, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty awful. It it really sucks. So, uh, moving right along, we've got a couple little stories here that I want to I wanna highlight. Oh, sorry, we had a couple comments on this. I wanted to get to that. Uh, there was one I wanted to point out here. Hassam, to be fair, this event probably was scheduled a few months, if not a year ahead. I seriously doubt it was scheduled a whole year ahead to then fulfill some executive compensation or executive you know, back padding. But even if it was scheduled a few months ahead, you know, the thing that these large corporations also do is start the strategic planning of layoffs a couple months ahead. So what you could do is say, hey, we're looking at this next fiscal quarter. This next fiscal quarter probably won't be as good as the last year's fiscal quarter. Maybe we just don't do the executive back padding private concert this year because we're probably going to have to do some layoffs to keep shareholders happy. All of that has a window. It's not like they planned the Sting concert a year in advance, then a week before the Sting concert said, oh no, we've got to cut 10% of our labor force. So if we're going to give Microsoft the benefit of the doubt on the Sting concert, we also have to double tag them on the layoff timing I feel that works too. (laughs) Barry Johnson. Yeah, nothing says tighten our belts like taking the private jets to Davos. 
even if they didn't take the private jets, they still had to like book travel. And something tells me the executives weren't like, oh, you know what? Let me check Southwest rates. I'll pay for it myself. <laughs> hey, folks, are you getting bored of the current collection of tech and geek commentary on the Internet? Is the discussion of new electronics feeling a bit stale? Do you want to find some fresh voices to add to your subscription queue? Check out the community on r glowing rectangles on Reddit. Now, this subreddit was built to help new voices in the tech community find more audience, and we need your support. Sharing, commenting, and those precious, tasty upvotes. Reddit can radically help a content creator expand their reach. Do you know a producer who deserves more attention? Do you just want to find fun new stuff? Head on over to reddit.com slash r slash glowing rectangles and share or browse to your heart's content. Once again, reddit.com slash r slash glowing rectangles, and let's build something cool together. Oh, Twin Folk, I like that. That's pretty good. How fitting. The execs see sting, and then the employees feel the sting of unemployment. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And from Awesome Possum, don't forget the, don't forget that next year they can claim continued record record profits and revenue growth. And all because they're trying to do this thing on like cutting costs. But that's not what employees of your company are. And it's the same problem that I have with Google, because Google has been talking about, well, we've got to we've got to trim all this fat and we've got to stop killing projects and we've got to stop starting new projects that we're gonna kill. You're like, you know what that is? That's not anything on Google engineers. You've created this corporate culture at Google of Googlers. Like people identify as working at Google in a way that no other company has really, well, maybe Apple. I think Apple employees are likely of a similar, uh, similar mindset. But if, if you're creating these projects and you're allowing that kind of waste to foster and then you built this terrible reputation of killing the projects that you start up, that's a management issue. That's not one you throw at the feet of your employees. The buck stops at the CEO. And instead, I'm seeing uh, Sundar Pichai like, oh, well, it's just we, the market forces and I just couldn't and I don't know what to, there's nothing else we could do. And you're like, no, there's definitely better management tactics and a better organization and a better structure that you could employ and not let go of 10% of your global workforce. That's a bad look. That is a, a not as capable CEO, in my opinion. If we're getting to this point after the most successful fiscal quarters in the company's history, the CEO could not predict that eventually the market would correct. <laughs> and Gary the Fireman, speaking of Google, I'm still waiting on the January update. Me too! Double trouble. Hashtag Team Pixel. <laughs> All right, now we're going we're gonna to just chew through a couple other uh, stories here. Just keep these nice and short and sweet. Um, things just to keep an eye on. Stories that are developing. Uh, and, and the first one is literally just please check out your personal information, your personal data. I have not been affected by this, or at least PayPal has not disclosed that I've been affected by this. But um, PayPal accounts breached in large-scale credential stuffing attack. Um, close to 35,000 users have been impacted. 
So I want to get to uh, here. Here's the, the quote from PayPal. We reset the passwords of the affected PayPal accounts and implemented enhanced security controls that will require you to establish a new password the next time you log into your account. And then also, impacted users will receive a free-of-charge two-year identity theft monitoring service from Equifax. That's not super great, but it's at least some kind of response. But roughly 35,000 people... Um, personal information was likely accessed. So it's not just like names and account, uh, account information. It's also things like um, uh, addresses and social security numbers. So uh, if, if you use PayPal, especially if you use PayPal in a more passive way, I feel like those are the people that are always the most vulnerable or the people, I have a PayPal account, but I just don't use it very often. I'm regularly in my PayPal account. I know when something is looking wrong or something has gone weird or bork, and I've been able to react to it pretty quickly. If you haven't used your, or you don't use your PayPal account with much frequency, those are the people that I always feel kind of get lost in the shuffle. Six months from now, they log into their PayPal and go, wait a minute, why was my password changed? So be on the lookout, definitely check your email, definitely check your spam. If you have a PayPal account, log into your account, see what's going on, see if your password has been automatically restricted so that you have to create a new password. It's just a bummer that these things happen. Um, This one seems a little bit more localized, but 35,000 people, that's a lot of people. Um, And we wanna make sure that our circles of family and friends are well protected. Again, it's one of those, it's like, you need to spread the word on it. You know, like a bank or an institution or something that handles your money or credit card information. When something like that goes bork, we need to spread the word and make sure that people can take steps to protect themselves. Yeah, see, Brian, exactly. Um, I don't know why your that comment got like weirdly highlighted. Um, I'm in the former. I rarely use mine. You're exactly the kind of person I would be most worried about. <laughs> like, oh no, my address and social security <laughs> number were accessed through PayPal and I didn't know about it for a couple months. What's going on? Why are people trying to buy houses with my personal information? So check it out. I hope no one in this chat has been directly affected by that. Oh, Farhan, I recently... Um, I recently reassessed my PayPal just to downgrade my account from a business to a personal. Um, and from Gormlord, should we change passwords just to be safe? I mean, I'm no snubs. Um, you know, Shannon Morse, I believe, would probably have very strict guidelines on what you should be doing with anything that handles your financials. I would say if you haven't changed your password in a while, it's just a good time to change your password anyway. Um, so I, I would be of the mind to say yes. Uh, I, I use PayPal regularly, and I'm kind of changing my password up yearly-ish. Um, but, you know, I might change mine now, too. I, I haven't gotten any notification from PayPal, but it couldn't hurt just to shake up what information is uh, is being sort of protected on PayPal side. And at least I'm doing my side in trying to protect that info. And also, two-factor, exactly, Control-Alt-Clay. Um, and Twin Folk also saying, you know, not only change your password, but make sure you're using two-factor. All right, next up, this one's just weird. Uh, I don't know if it was last week or the week before. I spent a lot of time kind of rambling about Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act and how there are, there's a case going before the Supreme Court that is going to 
probably not go our way <laughs> if we're looking for a reasonable and nuanced uh, sort of refining of the Communications Decency Act. I think, unfortunately, the leaning of our um, Supreme Court is going to be like, it's not constitutional and you just need to get rid of it. And then calamity is going to break out on the internet. But this is a story coming by way of Ars Technica. Supreme Court allows Reddit mods to anonymously defend Section 230. Uh, this is written, written up by Ashley Bellinger, and she's been doing just killer work lately on some of these more complicated legal issues. Um, uh, again, the Ars Technica snap, staff is just solid in general, but I've really been enjoying how she puts together these articles. So instead of me trying to recap all of this here, please go read the Ars Technica. All of these links will be in the show notes on this podcast episode, somegadgetguy.com. But the, the long and short of this, um, a lot of these tech companies obviously want the full protection of Section 230. I don't believe they earn it or deserve it. I believe if you manage a platform, but then you can alter the feed of the content of that platform, then you fall just outside the full protections of Section 230. But I believe there should be protections for platforms that allow hosting of content from users. But we've got to redefine what that relationship looks like in 21st century terms. So my feelings on this are really complicated. Again, I want to point you to Legal Legal DJ, who has done free speech videos and Section 230 videos, and you will get a good legal perspective of what free speech means in a digital economy on private platforms. It's kind of complicated. If we don't acknowledge that it's kind of complicated and we have a bunch of political yahoos going, no, you just got to get rid of it. You can't tell me what I can't post on Facebook. Like, that doesn't help us. That makes everything way worse. But what's interesting about this is one of those platforms that is most known for hosting of user-generated content is Reddit. The actual structure of Reddit is user-generated. So it's, it's interesting to see that it's not only Reddit is going to deliver arguments before the Supreme Court, it's that they're also going to protect the anonymity of Reddit moderators, which should hopefully open up some of this discussion and allow for sort of a clearer transparency on how Reddit functions. I'll be really curious to see how this debate plays out. I have very low expectations from our Supreme Court. I feel they're probably going to come to the wrong conclusion for what will really be beneficial to society. Um, and I believe they'll probably justify a decision with very specious legal uh, defenses. Um, but what I think will be interesting is seeing how this conversation is joined. Because this is a, a slightly different kind of debate than the normal major tech company lobbying or bribing lawmakers to support policy. This is now an anonymously held conversation that will go before the highest court in the land as opposed to trying to work from the lawmaker side of this. So that's why I think we should be keeping an eye on this specifically. The Supreme Court taking a hatchet to Section 230 is going to be bad for everybody. Um, whether you're not, because I, I love how both liberal and conservative lawmakers all feel like big tech is out to get them. 
like big tech is failing all of us, and yet more money goes into politician coffers from like the major tech companies and both sides of the aisle. Um, but when we talk about a nuanced approach to really managing how users interact with these services, that's what we need to keep an eye on. So read this article. Please dig through this article. And it is. It's a really well put together sort of examination of how the structure of this has gotten to the point that it has. And then we just need to keep an eye on what the Supreme Court does. Section 230 is going to be a a visceral political debate that I don't think a lot of end users are prepared for. They're going to say, oh, but you, you are biased against me. And then they completely miss that, like, the entire structure of online discourse is sort of protected by your right to not publish, which is a free speech issue. That is a First Amendment issue, is compelled speech. You cannot be forced to say or publish something that you don't want to. I would like to continue protecting that right. Gutting Section 230 probably won't help us there. So, um, <laughs> uh, sorry, yeah, uh, just reading, reading some of these comments on here, I realized, like, oh, no, I'm kind of political soapboxing again. And then, uh, lastly, just because I think it's, it's a hilarious look, um, we talk about sort of a disingenuous uh, joining of a conversation. Like, we've been covering the Twitter shenanigans, how Twitter is basically dead to me, how much it breaks my heart that I can't really trust or rely on it as a platform. I've been having a ton of weird issues cropping up where, like, I don't get notifications. I was, I was getting DMs from people and, like, nothing was popping up on the website or on my phone. Like, the entire back-end structure of notifying for messaging was completely gutted for like two or three days. I would have to manually go in and refresh just to see if I had any new messages. Again, I was like, I almost wonder like, did they do that, on, do that on purpose to show additional users interacting? <laughs> I don't know. It's so terrible. And that's where we're at now with Twitter is what gimmick are they going to try to juice up their user numbers? So, um, this is the second article from Ars Technica, this podcast not brought to you by Ars Technica, but I cribbed them a lot. Twitter retroactively changes developer agreement to ban third-party clients. A single line changed days after a vague statement ends a foundational era. This is written up by Kevin Purdy. This is hilarious because the we, we talked about it a little, a little loosely. It wasn't like a major article, but how... Uh, Twitter quietly had pulled this API support for third-party Twitter apps. And a lot of developers are going like, hey, you know, my stuff's broken now. Why isn't anything working? Why am I in this read-only mode? And Twitter put out this real nebulous PR response saying, all we're doing is enforcing a rule in our terms of service. A long, what was it? It was like, we're enforcing a long-standing rule in our user licensing agreement. I forget the exact quote. I'm, I'm, I'm not doing a good, a good journalistic job of, of uh, accounting for this, for this change, this policy, I should say. Well, that wasn't true. The thing that they're talking about, like, hey, you know, this was in our agreement. They just recently changed after the policy had changed 
and now they're trying to like point to that. See, see, that was a part of our developer agreement. And so now they, all of these third-party apps are running afoul of our developer agreement that we just changed um, on January 19th, which is a long-held policy at Twitter. The, the, the Twitter policy is five days old. That's a long-held developer agreement policy that we've always had, except for the change that we just made to it. <laughs> it's like a total raging dumpster fire. And uh, again, from the end user perspective, like not a lot has really changed, but I have so little faith or trust in Twitter as a platform now, I can't imagine any like reputable brand or company really dumping serious money into the sort of advertising coffers on Twitter. So Elon Musk's debt payments are coming up. I'm really curious to see how he gets special treatment to weasel out of paying his debt. Because, again, if you're a billionaire, you don't have to pay your debts. You can just keep borrowing other people's money to run companies into the ground, and everyone still claims that you're some kind of, I don't know, hipster genius. And banks have already sunk so much money into you and your other brands that they're reluctant to really step on, well... You owe us a billion dollars. I guess we'll let this one slide, you little scamp. But next month, you really better consider paying some of your bill. And like, man, if I did that to one of my mortgage payments, I think I'd get like, what, maybe a month of consideration and then I'd be homeless. <laughs> and I really feel like more billionaires need to feel that as a, as a potential threat. Is like, hey, you're doing business in a very uh, inconsiderate way. And you should be beholden to the same rules as everybody else. At least the same rules as everybody else. Because when you have a wacky whim, uh, it, billions of people are affected by it. So, you know, maybe we just hold on to all your other stuff. Hey, if you can't pay this billion dollars, I don't know. That SpaceX is looking pretty tasty. We'll take a chunk of that. Why don't you give us a billion dollar chunk of SpaceX? How about that? And if they were really feeling like that kind of pressure, maybe billionaires wouldn't do things like this and wreck stuff for everybody else. <laughs> Again, there I go. Like, I'm wearing the right cap, too, to be like some commie guy. Oh, I don't want to be... Okay, yeah, it's fine. No, it is what it is. I, I, I should probably just own it at this point. As I get older and crankier... It's, uh, <laughs> I, keep, I was always told, hey, as you get older and you start owning things like your own cars and your own property, you're going to get more conservative too. And I, I kind of wish, you know, my grandfather was still around to see just how raging left wing I'm becoming because of business practices like what we're seeing at Twitter. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to take another drink of coffee. Then we're going to plug a subreddit and <laughs> talk more about social media. It's hilarious. Hold on one second. PP Joker, thank goodness I never had a Twitter account. I mean, I know that's like the popular, like kind of reactionary thing. I I'll tell you, man, social media is exactly what you make out of it. I, I had some of, some incredible experiences on early Twitter. I've built and maintained friendships almost exclusively through Twitter. Twitter remained one of the last bastions of chronologically sorted information. It wasn't overly ratcheted to be an algorithm-driven experience. 
you could find ridiculous pockets of Twitter that were stupid, um, that you would hate, that you would not want to interact with all those people. In fact, as an outrage machine, Twitter was pretty well designed, but it was never the painful outrage machine that Facebook became. Um, and you had much better tools at your disposal to craft a Twitter experience that was in keeping with what you cared about. Um, not just as an echo chamber, but just genuinely, like, if I am passionate about this, I can surround myself with people that are likewise similarly passionate. And I've gotten into great conversations and debates and arguments and, and reinforced, like, the recovery of those arguments and built friendships out of that. And people that I normally would have just banned on YouTube or blocked on Facebook have become friends on Twitter. So it, 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 it hurts, you know, like... Not because I was so invested in the platform, but the platform afforded me tools that crafted an experience that I very much appreciated. So I put the work into crafting that experience, and I felt I was rewarded for it. Now that experience is gone, and I have zero trust in being able to fully recover what I loved about Twitter. I feel like that ship has sailed, and it, it, short of radical, drastic change, Elon Musk stepping down... And sort of like very visible public gestures of reform will bring me back to treating Twitter with the same kind of casual uh, uh, access that I used to just constantly be on Twitter, reacting to people, responding to people, DMing with people. All that's kind of been soured. So it, it's, it's really a bummer. Um, that, that's what really makes me sad is some billionaire got an idea in his head and he wanted a fun, shiny new thing to play with and he grossly overspent on it. Now he's been trying to weasel out of his obligations since announcing he was going to buy it. And I feel like that needs a much bigger market correction to take that individual to task for wrecking something that I liked. So it's, it's a bummer. But a lot of people who didn't have Twitter accounts, I totally vibe with like, yeah, I never got into that mess and now I don't have to worry about it. Like that kind of is a nice feeling. I'm not going to lie. I wish I could sort of join you on that. Uh, baseball Super. Hold on, let me see. Hey, Juan, have you covered the new M2 MacBook Pros yet? So uh, that's a question that I've gotten on my channel quite a bit. Um, I put out a video two years ago where I said I was not going to review any Apple products so long as they were instituting software backdoors and on-device content scanning. Um, as soon as Apple disclosed that that's how they were going to offload server costs to try and make users responsible for their own the content on their own devices and that they were going to be instituting this new hash scanning system that to me sounded extremely dangerous to privacy and to end user security. I said I wasn't going to cover any new Apple products and I've still been on that ban. It hurts my channel. I don't really particularly like the direction Apple is going with most of their products. I really like Apple Silicon. I think that is such a huge step forward for ARM, but that's compartmentalized. That to me is the Silicon team is doing something kind of amazing, but it's wrapped up in the greater product team and the greater global Apple team. And I don't feel their executive strategy deserves the positive praise that they get all the time 
in the media. Apple, I feel, really does not deserve this darling sweetheart position that we always kind of talk about their products. Even if we don't like them, it's always, oh, that's scamping. We know they're going to be real popular. Um, I really feel Apple deserves a much larger market correction. So Apple made this sort of quiet announcement that they weren't going to be instituting the same policy of device scanning that they originally detailed. So I started looking into that. I thought, okay, well, if they're going to back off from that, that to me was a bridge too far. I despise their anti uh, right to repair initiatives. I despise how locked up their uh, their walled garden is. I really hate how they manage their accessories. Uh, just the lightning connector alone is enough for me to never use an iPhone. Um, but it's been sort of disclosed recently that in newer builds of Mac OS and iOS, a significant amount of data on the quality of the content that's stored on the device is still being sent to Apple servers. So while they aren't doing the exact on-device scanning scheme that they had originally disclosed, they're still kind of doing it. And at the same time, they have significantly ratcheted up how much user data is being sent to Apple servers to then serve you more ads in Apple services. Apple is looking at advertising as the next major revenue growth engine on a lot of their products. So you get to pay more to own something Apple, and then it's still gonna scan all of your content and report back, and it's still gonna siphon off all of your behavioral data, and all of that's gonna get sent to a server, and you're tracked and managed and observed just like you would be on a Google-powered product. So. I'm not inclined to change my stance on not reviewing anything Apple until I see that there is an actual fundamental structural change and that they live up to their marketing on being the company that cares about your privacy and your security. They pay Google, I think last year, they, Google paid Apple $14 billion to be the default search engine on Siri and on Safari. So Apple profits significantly off of your user data by allowing another company to come in and siphon off your user data. But even if you change that, Apple, for their own apps, siphons off your data, and it doesn't matter if you opt out. So when Facebook tries to build data on your behavior to sell ads on Facebook, Apple shut that down, and they said, hey, this falls afoul of our developer guidelines. Apple apps are immune to the developer guidelines, and they're doing the exact same thing that they shut Facebook down for, I don't see how that's different. <laughs> I don't see how that's better. If we're afraid of Meta, and we're afraid of Google, and we're afraid of Amazon, similarly, we need to be similarly afraid of Apple. So I'm not... The, the, the new M2 looks amazing. That looks like an incredible piece of silicon, like a, a nice TikTok update over the M1. I think it's going to be a baller performer. I am seriously invested in personal computing on ARM. The price, performance, performance per watt, everything looks amazing. I cannot vibe with the whole company structure that is built around that chip. If I could get that chip on my own and put it into something that I have more control over, I'd be over the moon. But I can't do that, so I'm not going to talk about it. But short story, incredibly long. Super excited by the tech, and I wish that tech could be separated from the parent. The, the company, to me, is, is becoming 
uh, insidiously vile in its hypocrisy, whereas before it was just sort of annoying. Now I feel it is actually actively looking at consumer harm for company growth and company profits. <laughs> All right. Uh, every podcast has a subreddit. My podcast is no exception. We've been talking a lot about social media and how we handle algorithms and, and sort of uh, building communities. And I am trying to keep a community afloat on Reddit where we support tech content creators and we try and engage in a broader conversation on things that we can do with our tech. So if you go to reddit.com slash r slash glowing rectangles, you'll see a collection of... Uh, content creators that that this community is is trying to promote. The whole point of this subreddit should be that it's a little incubator and hopefully there's some popularity and people enjoy finding new things and then that spreads. Um, this week wasn't great. This this is like one of the, the lightest weeks that we've had for the subreddit. Reddit.com slash r slash glowing rectangles. Like again, I've got 43 people watching right now and if half of you upvoted one article, it would be the top article of the week. So as much as we always complain, hey, I hate it when it's wacky thumbnails and clickbait and everyone's talking about Steam Deck killers and all these things that we think are really annoying, the barest minimum of of interaction would start changing that. Literally going to reddit.com slash r slash glowing rectangles and clicking one little up arrow would start to fundamentally change the flow of information on this subreddit and start making it more algorithm, algorithmically popular on other platforms. That's literally <laughs> the bare minimum of interaction that would start to change things that we all say we're annoyed by instead of just allowing YouTube to feed you a quantity of information. So uh, on the subreddit this week, uh, the top posting was my Steam Deck... Uh, video. Sorry, Chief, there are no Steam Deck killers out right now. But number two, I wanted to highlight because this is exactly the kind of stuff that I love seeing find some footing and find some popularity. So this was posted from the LGV60 subreddit, and then I shared it on Glowing Rectangles, and it was the second most upvoted post. It's just a screenshot of someone using an LGV60 with Screen Plus. And they have a full Linux desktop running with Termux X11 in Screen Plus. So you can take your LG V60, plug it into a monitor, you get the main Android uh, desktop mode that was built into the LG series of phones. And then on top of that, they're running a Linux desktop. Like they've got, I think it's GIMP <laughs> running um, one of the open office clones. I, I don't know if it's if it's OpenOffice or it's LibreOffice, but it's some kind of document editing software. They have an entire Linux desktop running out of their phone. So uh, that to me was like a brilliant share. Like I love seeing that on the LG V60. I love knowing that like now, now it's a, a what practically a three-year-old phone is not only super capable still, but it's running Linux. <laughs> like, that's awesome. That's great. Um, and then I just wanted to highlight number three. Uh, this was an editorial from windowscentral.com. Apple's performance comparisons to Windows PCs continue to be hilarious and ridiculous. 
And so uh, while we've been really, I'm really excited about Apple Silicon just from that sort of uh, um, uh, performance and competition standpoint, again, Apple Silicon has really kicked Intel and AMD into making not just better performing parts, but better performance per watt parts. Absolutely ecstatic, over the moon. But the way that Apple talks about their products is hilarious and dumb. I believe one of their unlabeled bar graphs was like, the M2 silicon is going to perform 300% better than a leading Windows notebook. And you're like, yeah, but a leading Windows notebook is likely a 200 to $300 machine. If you go to Amazon and you look up like the top selling laptops over the last year, I don't know that out of the top 10, I don't know that many of them break $400. (laughs) The only ones that are like premium tier are Mac. So like, yeah, it's it's 300% more performance than an Intel Celeron isn't the win you think it is. (laughs) I was at Costco and you're like, Man, they have a bunch of $299 to $349 Chromebooks. And I bet you the Apple M2 outperforms all of them. <laughs> Whoa, I just blew your mind there, right? That I bet you a $1,000 MacBook is going to just wipe the floor with a $300 Celeron-powered Chromebook, right? That is a shock. That's a shocker. You take that one right to the YouTube algorithm, just going to blow people's minds. So that was the top three. Um, the, the number three post was that Windows Central editorial. Um, that, but again, like, we've got some really fun stuff on here. I, my NeuroTrue did pretty well this week. Number five was how to do uh, dual screen retro emulator gaming on a Surface Duo. That's coming by Scary If Literal, uh, Shane Craig. Um, he also reviewed the Unihertz tank. That did pretty well. And then rounding out the... Oh, rounding out the top 10. I wanted to highlight this one too. Luma Fusion made me hate my Pixel 7 Pro from Mitchell Millennial. And you know what? Normally I'm not Mr. Clickbaity, but this was a pretty good look at Luma Fusion and did detail some of the frustrations I've had with calling the Pixel 7 Pro a pro. Um, so that was definitely a, a video that... And it's not very long. It's like a couple minutes editorial... I, I, th- I felt was like, okay, yeah, I kind of vibe with what he's getting at there. So uh, reddit.com slash r slash glowing rectangles. If you want to see different stuff on YouTube, start to find more audience and become more popular, you kind of need to be the change you want to see in the world. And uh, putting in a little effort onto social media and communities and sharing and upvoting and commenting, all those things are going to help affect change. And especially in a year where content creators are getting hammered. I think it was Saturday. I posted on Mastodon that in one hour, I had seven different tech content creators tweet how they were slowing down production, taking a break from YouTube, or walking away from YouTube. Seven. And those people didn't get a ton of attention because they had medium-sized audiences and that kind of stuff just sort of withers and dies when you try to call out. Those people were looking for reassurance. Those people were looking for any type of interaction or response. The reason why we host and produce this content is because we want to get 
into the conversations and into the debates. And we want to learn new things and have people come and chat with us and likewise share information. Like we're excited about this and we're looking for similarly excited geeks. Seven people in one hour on a Saturday on Twitter. (laughs) So if you like watching cool stuff on the internet, not even financially, just emotionally, the support means everything to people that are trying to continue joining and supporting these kinds of conversations. And if you've ever been annoyed looking through like your YouTube feed, like, well, why does YouTube keep feeding me these videos? There is a place where you can find some other stuff to talk about, and it's usually a lot broader than what's going to be positioned in the YouTube algorithm. So, um, (laughs) Ted, oh no, Scott Peachy. Scott, I mean, he has been at this game for a while. Uh, uh, Technically speaking, one of my favorite streams and podcasts, knowledgeable dude, really, really savvy when it comes to like consumer electronic security and privacy, um, really into the pixel ecosystem, let his channel sort of just go on hiatus for a bit, tried to bring it back. YouTube just savaged his audience and his metrics, tried doing produced videos again, again, like found no footing, no audience, no support. And uh, he's, he's got some other life things happening where he's going to have to take another break. And in taking another break, he kind of knows, like, man, YouTube isn't going to bring me back when I come back. Why would I keep producing on this channel and banging my head against the wall and smashing my face into this keyboard? Why keep dealing with this frustration? And we might, we might lose, technically speaking. He hasn't made a decision yet, as far as I know. It's still a big if, but... In five weeks, after his life has kind of settled and he can get back into production, maybe it's just not worth the hassle. Maybe it's time for him to move on. And you're like, you know what? He's always going to be a buddy. He's always going to be a pal. I've had so many conversations with him. I'm not going to, like, just disappear him because he's not making YouTube videos. But, like, I, I can't blame him. Why? Why would you put yourself through that frustration and that ire and that angst Constantly seeing the little red arrows on your YouTube metrics. No. No. Let it go. Let it go. <laughs> so, um, well, I mean, Gormlord, this is a part of it. I love YouTube, but it's beyond a dumpster fire. You really have to love doing content creation to keep going on there. Um, yeah. But I mean, this is kind of what I'm talking about, is the next phase of what we do and what we talk about is not treating the platform like it's the entire ecosystem. If you rethink your relationship with YouTube as a consumer, and that is just a server that stores videos, but it is not your main recommendation engine, you will have a better time consuming YouTube videos. That's the benefit. I'm not doing this just to say, oh, but content creators and woe is them. I'm doing this because you legitimately will have a better time talking about tech when you walk away from discovery through YouTube. If you go to reddit.com slash r slash glowing rectangles and you just start scanning what's been posted and shared there, you're going to see a fundamentally different collection of tech conversations than what's served to you on YouTube. I'm saying your experience is going to be better. If you really love tech 
and you really love tech content creators, you will have a better time not relying on YouTube for everything. So um, that's that's the subreddit plug. <laughs> it it kind of got out of hand. <laughs> Let me take another drink of coffee here. I, I'm I'm just lightly coffeeed, uh, caffeinated this week. Just a quick interjection here, folks. I love highlighting good work and talented people, producers and writers who deserve more attention. So here's a quick word from someone making cool stuff on the internet, and I hope you check out what they have to offer. Hey there, Juan, and hey there, you. This is Jason Howell from All About Android over at the twit.tv podcast network. Juan has been a guest on All About Android a number of times. In fact, we have awesome guests on the show each and every week, and we'd love for you to check out the show if you haven't already. Twit.tv slash AAA is where you can go to find new episodes of All About Android. Each and every week, we talk about the top Android news, hardware, apps. We have a reviews portion called The Arena. It's very competitive, but in a fun way. We have a really great time doing this show, and we would love for you to join us sometime and check it out. We get uh, journalists from throughout the Android world joining us. We even sometimes get Googlers who are actually making Android on the show to talk about what we love so much about the world of Android. That's twit.tv slash AAA for new episodes of All About Android each and every Tuesday. All right, Juan, back to you. All right, so we're getting into the gadget block. Um, I kind of wanted to start with this one because it's another uh, it's another uh, trend that I think we need to be a little concerned about. Um, I don't know how how do you folks feel? We had third party companies like Tile. Excuse me. We had third-party companies like Tile that made these products that helped you track things. These little Bluetooth pucks that could chirp and make alarms and and operated within a certain sphere. Then Tile tried to make a broader organization of location tracking. So if you opted into Tile by buying a a Tile and installing the app you were a part of a network that could potentially help other people locate missing things. Then Apple copied Tile's business model and gave their own product full access to the entire network of iPhones and iPads and Macs through the Find My service. Something they never would have allowed Tile to do, they ripped off Tile's business model and gave themselves an entrenched advantage over Tile. Tile suffered, and now they're bought out by a company that I think is a little questionable in how they might be utilizing personal information and personal data. I don't have enough information to make a direct claim there. It just worries me when location information changes hands between different parent companies. I believe that's fair to be concerned about. So then we get this news, and Google is reportedly working on a location tracker like Apple's AirTag, codenamed Grogu. It could be announced during Google I.O. I am kind of torn on this because I am no fan of Samsung, but Samsung has a service that utilizes a network of devices to help people locate things. I'm concerned about the changing parent company at Tile, but Tile had a service that 
was good at helping people find missing things. And for the same reason that I was just criticizing Apple ripping off that business model, I don't know that I like everything being under um, sort of a, a, a Google account. You know what I mean? Like everything being kind of collected under one Google label. I liked diversifying and having fallbacks and it makes me a little anxious when it's all of my eggs in one basket. So I'm emotionally concerned, though I have to practically consider that Google's solution will be better than a third-party solution. And honestly, I bet you that Google will probably do a better job of handling privacy and stalking than Apple has. Apple tried to make the best product they could for Apple owners at the expense of Android and and Microsoft users. Uh, so if you're stalking someone, you can slap an AirTag on something. And like there is no good way to notify an Android user that they're being Apple AirTag stalked. Something tells me Google will do a better job of approaching the Bluetooth SIG, the Bluetooth Special Interest Group, and saying, hey, we need... You know, like when you get a new phone, you pick up your phone and you go, like, okay, I'm going to pair some earbuds. You get some earbuds and you flip open the earbuds and a little Bluetooth signal goes to the phone and says, hey, there's some new earbuds. Do you want a quick pair with these earbuds? Apple should have done that with the Bluetooth Special Interest Group to say, hey, we've noticed that there's a tracker in your vicinity and, you, and it's been following you for the last 20 minutes. Are you aware of this tracker? And that should be a Bluetooth component, but Apple did not do that because Apple does not want to play with standards so that they can charge you more for a poorer overall interoperability experience. Apple makes more money off of you feeling like you're special. So I believe Google will probably do that better because Google is already uh, in a position where they have terrible optics on user privacy and data security, right? Everybody is, is skeptical of Google in that sphere, even though I think their track record is actually like comparable. Like they do a pretty good job of this stuff compared to the actual visibility of, of the company. So I'm sorry, that was super rambly. My feelings on this are really complicated. Um, it makes me anxious. I believe it'll be a better version of this product. I kind of don't want Google to do it. Or if they are looking at this as some kind of serious like infrastructure, maybe expanding some of the opt-in measures on a find my phone type of service would be, would be enough. I don't know that I want more single-use, kind of disposable, tracking radio products out in the environment. I just don't know that that's what I... Instead, like, you know, saying this has a Bluetooth connection and that it can kind of report to other phones in its vicinity and that you can kind of get a sense of where these got lost, great. I, I'm torn on the same Google infrastructure being used for these little tracker things that they can, that can then be put on any product or any car or luggage or a kid's backpack. I mean, that's the thing that's making me real, the unintended consequences of location tracking. They're really difficult to keep an eye on. So 
it's upsetting. Not upsetting. It's anxiety-inducing. Um, from Sore Hunter here, uh, when there are news about people losing access to all their digital life just because a parent took a photo of his kid unclothed to send to the doctor and Google flagging it as abuse imagery, I'm not really into putting more uh, stuff connected to the same Google account. Uh, from Aditya Anil, yeah, no, I like not having to remember 35 different passwords, but all things under one Google account is also really scary. Um, imagine Google banning your account because YouTube thought you were spamming in the comments. It's happened. People have to look at alternatives to Gmail and it's very hard times. Um, yeah, Copacash, you know, writers reviewing these services act like Apple invented the service. <laughs> again, Samsung and Tile were there. Uh, again, it kills me. It really does matter that we properly credit a company when they do something first. I'm so tired of the, it doesn't really matter who gets there first. It really does. If you claim you care about these features and services and products, you should support the companies that really brought you those features and services and products. Um, PP Joker, I got to change all my passwords for my account soon. <laughs> it's, you know what? Spring cleaning, right? You know, make it like a yearly habit. I'm, I'm, the weather's changing, the birds are chirping, the sun's shining, and every password in my password manager... Click reset, click reset, click reset, click reset. <laughs> so I understand this, Brian. And like I said, I believe it'll be a better version, but I still feel we need to have a more nuanced tech conversation. Brian says they have to do this. Big missing service versus Apple and Samsung. And most customers want first-party solutions, not third-party, unfortunately. And, and I feel like if we talked about Apple data tracking and privacy crippling initiatives in the same way that we talk about every other company and we had a fair marketplace of ideas, I wouldn't be as anxious about this. I wouldn't be as anxious about a first party service competing with a third party service because they'd be on a more level playing field. But instead it's like every special consideration goes to Apple and every special critique goes to their competitors. And that's where we have that lopsided view, like where you're saying customers don't want the third-party solution, unfortunately. I think it's on us to do a better job of breaking this information down. But unfortunately, if you step afoul of Apple, you lose access and you lose money. I mean, like the Wall Street Journal was criticizing Apple's on-device scanning in a room full of Macs with Craig Federici not questioned on any of his responses to the policy. Like they did a whole sit-down interview with this beautifully hair-coiffed individual from Apple, and he's a he's a pretty cool product guy, but nothing was really pushed. <laughs> you know, there was no like the whole angle was. Let me just tell you, it's not going to be as bad as people think it's going to be. <laughs> You're like, well, that's not reassuring at all, Craig. <laughs> but the Wall Street Journal didn't want to sacrifice their sort of special relationship and the access that they have to Apple and and their executives. That to them would be a, a losing money situation. And that to me is where we're going to be stuck for a while so long as we keep lopsiding this conversation. Sorry, I'm, I'm way behind on the chat, so I'm just catching up. And then uh, Jaime333, as tempting as it is to use my Google account, I create a new account based on my other email accounts and then I save them in Bitwarden. And I think that is a great policy. I was using the Mozilla password manager. So it made me sad because Mozilla killed 
their uh, password manager, but it's still built into Firefox. <laughs> and I'm just a lazy creature of habit. So my Firefox account is still my main password manager for a lot of these other like peripheral services that I know I'm just never going to remember that password. My core services, I'm changing regularly and I sit there and I make myself memorize those passwords. Um, but like everything else, it's it, on my Android phone. I go into Firefox, the web browser, and go into the settings and find my account. And like, okay, that's my password. Copy, paste. It's it's cumbersome, but it also keeps me from like, I don't know. It kind of keeps me from getting too lazy with just putting everything in one in one service or in one basket. <clears throat> DTNL. Um, to be honest, if I were in a room interviewing Federici, the, the last thing I'd be paying attention to is what he's saying. That man is handsome AF. That is one strikingly good-looking, well-spoken dude. Completely agree. Like, him as one of those faces of the Apple product team, it's a good play. I get that play. So, I, I also want to talk about something else that has been super flipping frustrated. And again, I feel is like a, a real bad look for the broader competition on wearables and smartwatches. Uh, this is coming by way of 9to5Google, written up by Kyle Bradshaw. Mobvoi Tick Watch Pro 5 design leaks should bring Wear OS 3 and the Snapdragon W5 Plus. And I want to scroll down to their leaked picture of the watch. It looks like it's got the rotating crown uh, main button and a little side button. I think this is going to be the new sort of default hardware option for Wear OS, especially because it's similar to how we, uh, how we use the Pixel Watch. My wife has been rocking the Pixel Watch for a while. She really likes it. Um, this is a, Oh, Gary's got to hop out. Everyone say goodbye to Gary. I uh, got to hop off, uh, listen to the rest tonight. Peace out. Thanks for dropping by, Gary. I really appreciate it. Uh, let me drop that right there. Okay. So, um, yes, I am a big fan of the Wear OS, uh, tick watches. Right now I'm wearing my tick watch pro ultra GPS and, uh, genuinely is like my favorite hardware, great battery life. It's stuck on Wear OS 2. Um, it's like 2.6 or 2.7 or something like that, but it doesn't have Wear OS 3. I'm frustrated because Mobvoi promised Wear OS 3 when these watches launched. The, this and the Tick Watch E3. Again, the lower cost option, but it still has the more powerful um, Qualcomm chip. But here's the other side of that conversation. I'm still rocking this watch because it's decently feature complete for Wear OS 2. All of the new apps, all of the new developer support, they're moving to Wear OS 3 because there are more people on Samsung watches and the Pixel watch is probably going to eke out a nice little chunk of this market too, especially piggybacking on as much of the Fitbit infrastructure as, as, uh, as Google has. I feel like Google is going to kind of water down Fitbit to make Wear OS a little bit more attractive or a little bit more lucrative. But that means that the best experience on Wear OS is tied to Exynos chipsets. The Pixel Watch and the Galaxy Watch run on these little Exynos SOCs, these little Exynos watch chips made by Samsung. And Google and Samsung have really gotten in tight on their relationship to kind of promote this as an ecosystem.
that does not encourage me to overly recommend a Pixel watch or to only recommend a Galaxy watch. I am enough of a contrarian that it makes me kind of want to dig my heels in the dirt because groups like Mobvoi and Fossil kept Wear OS alive during the darkest days of Google ignoring their smartwatch platform. Mobvoi continued to put out killer hardware. I would like to see that company survive because their hardware has genuinely been some of my favorite to use. So Fossil started rolling out Wear OS 3, and it's been kind of a poop show. In fact, I don't believe that they still even have proper support for Google Assistant because the current infrastructure for Wear OS 3 only supports Exynos, does not fully or properly support Qualcomm. And Qualcomm is making the better chip for a smartwatch, more powerful and more power efficient. And this new WS5 Plus, whatever they're going to call it, um, is going to be another step positive to that. So when I get a W5 Plus, which is going to be more powerful and more power efficient, and Mobvoi puts this dual display tech, so it's got a low power LCD screen that can help this run, I'm expecting the next version of this tick watch to be like a four-day battery life watch, right? For a smartwatch, that's insane. That's huge. My wife, just regularly using the Pixel Watch, is having to kind of charge it twice a day, depending on where her sleep and workout schedules align. Sometimes she can make it a full day and she charges it at night, and then sometimes she wakes up and has to charge it in the morning, and then it kind of runs most of the day, and then she has to charge it again before she goes to bed. Like, this 18-hour to 24-hour window doesn't really work if you're constantly having to babysit and manage the gadget. It's more of a distraction to your daily life than if you just kind of wore it for a bunch of time, and then I have to be careful on a tick watch because it'll run so long, it'll go into a low-power state. So then I'll look at the watch and you're like, oh yeah, it's still running. Oh, the smartwatch turned off. (laughs) I just have a fancy pedometer on my wrist right now. I should probably charge my tick watch. It runs that long, that seamlessly. (sighs) So, um, this new watch looks solid. It looks like a lot of what we've been asking for from looking at the Galaxy watches over the last two years. I really like Mobvoi hardware. I'm frustrated because it seems to me that Google is purposely not supporting Qualcomm-powered hardware as well as they should. I don't believe Mobvoi has the resources to fully build everything on their own in the same time frame if Google and Samsung have been working together. And as much as I'm a fan of Pixel devices, I'm hashtag Team Pixel. I've got the Pixel Watch and the Pixel 7 Pro because hashtag gift from Google. I think Google and Samsung need to be really careful here. I feel, and I have no evidence to support this that would be legally actionable. I am not a lawyer and I am not making a claim. But I feel that down the road, if Google is not delivering similar support to the hardware manufacturers that have kept Wear OS alive, a couple lawyers at Mobvoi and the Fossil Group, which is a pretty big organization of watch manufacturing, 
might have some kind of claim to say that this was a collusive marketplace and that Google engaged in unfair anti-competitive business practices by only properly supporting Samsung with the newest software for their watches. If I were lawyers at Google looking at the wearable market and how, how that is such a profitable industry for not only selling like wearable devices, but also trafficking and user data, I would have very serious concerns over the optics of how come only these two watches seem to get any kind of support from the company that makes this smartwatch platform and these other brands are still stuck on older watch software. And there are very clear reasons that kind of point to two companies working together to the exclusion of the rest of the market. I am not a lawyer, but I feel there is potential in there for some kind of class action lawsuit. And something tells me that if that trend continues and we see Fitbit really become a Google product, a a Google service, I would be looking in the EU at regulators who might be concerned about a lopsided marketplace with one company having too much power and too much leverage over user data. If I were Google, I would be a bit more public and working a little bit more aggressively at supporting the healthy competition landscape of Wear OS. But that's just me. I'm not Mr. Google, so I can't make those kinds of decisions. But I would be really concerned if some lawyers and some regulators decide that, hey, you know what? I don't think Google's paid enough fines this fiscal quarter. What else can we find them on? (laughs) That would be, you know, I think it's a bad look. I think it's a bad look for Google. I really feel they could be doing this better. Um, got a question here. <clears throat> Sorry, I just coughed in the mic again. Uh, oh, wait, that's not what I wanted to highlight. From McCorcoran3, will Qualcomm stop, just stop making chipsets for watches? I think that is very unlikely. Um, wearables is still a good profit-generating sector. Um, what this does, I think this does the most damage to Wear OS. You've got these little compute chips that can go into smartwatches. If another company wants to kind of invest in a software platform to run them and use like a, an RTOS, like you can get like a fair amount of, of, uh, of good compute work done from some pretty open software initiatives uh, to drive your own platform. I think that's what we're seeing for a lot of the international markets. You know, I love my Amazfits. I've got my T-Rex over here. It's kind of one of my fallback watches when, when I, um, I'm, I'm doing outdoorsy stuff and I'm riding my bike and, you know, I just want something that's going to give me passive notifications because I can't really interact as frequently. That thing's rugged and, and bulletproof and it's built awesome. And it's an inexpensive watch that I won't feel too bad if I mess it up when I'm doing my rugged activity stuff or I take it out to the beach. Um, I feel what's really going to happen is consumers losing what little interest they had in Wear OS. Because right now, consumers have no interest in Wear OS. They're interested in Fitbits, because that has momentum. And they're interested in Galaxies, because Samsung and marketing. 
and they're good watches. The Galaxy watches are good watches, but they're not invested in Galaxy watch. It's just, oh, that's the Samsung watch that goes with my Samsung phone. It's an easy tie together, just like the Apple watch goes with my Apple phone. If you want better competition, you need Fossil, you need Mobvoi really operating as best as they can to be these sort of little peripheral alternatives that people can see in other places to kind of verify that Wear OS is a healthy ecosystem. Um, Fossil just came out with a new hybrid and it doesn't use Wear OS and it's kind of a, it's got mechanical hands for, for the time and then it's got its own low power, I think it's an digital link interface. And if it had any ability to respond to notifications, I would be all over that thing. But it's just a passive notification service. So it's a lot like the TickWatch. The TickWatch has this passive LCD. The Mobvoi, I mean the Mobvoi, the Fossil is taking us back to the Pebble. Digital Link is coming back. And guess what? You get phenomenally better battery life. So right now, um, earbuds, they're plateauing as a market, but there's still sales to be had there. Smartwatches, I feel like there's movement, but you're not selling more smartwatches. You're selling smartwatches to people who already have smartwatches. And Qualcomm is still in this market. MediaTek is looking at stepping into this market with a bit more focus. And I feel the people who are going to win out on Qualcomm and MediaTek staying are really all of these other players. All of these other sort of alternative brands, um, uh, Poco and Xiaomi, you're going to see a ton of watches from them. I bet you you're going to see another generation of BBK-backed smartwatches. The, the OnePlus watch was kind of a bust, right? It really struggled at launch. It was a very clumsy launch. They should have waited and polished that up. But you know they're not going to just leave it. There's too much money to be had with the accessory add-on. So I don't think Qualcomm's going to leave. I just think other companies are going to benefit from this, and we're going to get a poorer Wear OS experience for only having Google and Samsung playing in this market for as long as they have. And that makes me sad, because right now, the best compute interaction is on a Wear OS watch. No, I'm sorry. Apple Watch, yes, but I mean for us Android users, the best experience for being able to not just get a notification but also reply to that notification is on Wear OS. And that's what I want. But if you give me notification replies and speech-to-text replies on an AmazeFit, I'm probably going to go with that AmazeFit. It's kind of a no-brainer. I'll get like double the battery life of my tick watch, and the main thing I want is being able to reply to that text or to that instant message, or maybe even to an email directly from my wrist without having to pull my phone out of my pocket. If I can do that, I don't really need Wear OS anymore. So that's where we're really hurting. Um, and it sucks. Because again, you want to point some blame, and Mobvoid deserves some blame. I think they've done a terrible job of communicating with their customers. I feel like their PR is so limited, especially in English-speaking countries, that if you bought a, a tick watch, you'd be like, hey, I'm frustrated about this. And you try to talk with their, their support staff, and they're like, thank you for supporting our company. And you're like, no, you actually do need to address this more clearly and more publicly, but they also can't risk the ire of Google, right? They can't go out there and say, oh, I just said the G word and three phones on my desk just lit up. 
um, they can't go out and burn that bridge so long as their software is kind of tied to that ecosystem. And that's where we're, it's even more frustrating. I feel like that's one of the reasons why their fitness trackers have increasingly relied on RTOS versus Wear OS. Mobvoi, their arty software is really good. And they've got their own little fitness band. And it's a nice little watch. And so I feel like that's a direction that they're probably going to start pushing more of their products. Why rely on Google if Google won't support us or back us up? But customers get lost. So if a, a consumer has bought a tick watch like me and they are not paying attention to all of the shenanigans of the global semiconductor industry, they're not going to know that that's kind of the problem. Mobvoi needs to be more public about, hey, this is what's really going on with our products and we want to be able to support our customers and this is where we're stuck. And if you want to apply pressure and if you want to help us with this, you need to be able to communicate with Google that we also need the support and we also need the resources to properly deliver you the experience you should have. We don't want to give you Wear OS 3 and then sacrifice features like the Google Assistant that should be functional on your watch, but it's not. And it's not because Google and Samsung, not because of us. That's a hard conversation to have publicly because then a Google PR rep is going to be, no, we've given people all of the documentation and they have uh, Wear OS is an open platform and customers need to decide for themselves and blah, 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 bootstraps. And you're like, that's not it though. That's not the reality of how all of this works. <sighs> True Pax, yeah, me too, but I know they won't. I wish Sony would try again. You know, there's something in like, could you imagine, like, is, I, I don't think it would be, like, a great audiophile experience, but, like, a Sony Walkman watch. LDAC audio to some uh, XM4 earbuds paired directly with a good amount of storage. Like, Sony used to make, like, portable MP3 players in earbuds. I have the Meb Kafuxki, I can't pronounce his name, the marathon runner, um, edition Bluetooth MP3, not Bluetooth. They were just the MP3 players. They also made a Bluetooth version later. But like a Sony watch to pair with Sony earbuds is part of like a Sony ecosystem. And it's like a walk, a Walkman watch. So maybe it's not even running Wear OS. It's more of like, we're focused on your fitness and your tracking, but music and LDAC and really getting good high quality and blah, 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 blah. I'd love to see Sony do something like that. It's just highly unlikely they'll ever look at those kinds of accessories again. Um, yeah, see, Brian Glaze, exactly. That's what happens when legal has more power than the public relations department in an organization. Quote, but we gave them the documentation. <laughs> I, I believe very, very seriously, Google dumped this, like, code on Mobvoi and said, that's where OS3, have fun, chief, and then buggered out. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, no, I need more than, oh, this is all for Exynos. Oh, okay, well, yeah, we'll totally start working on Wear OS 3, I guess. It's so frustrating. It, 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 this is way more complicated than it needs to be. So I want to wrap up uh, th this this week. Uh, we've been getting some, some good rumors and uh, not just leaks, but like official corporate press releases uh, coming directly from OnePlus. So I'm usually not like super into talking about leaks and rumors. I mean, we talk about them on this podcast frequently, but I don't like spending all of our time speculating on what a device might bring 
unless we're feeling really confident that there's something there, there. Um, I, I don't like, you know, like, oh, well, the next OnePlus should have a 6K display and 600 watt charging and six cameras that all shoot 600 frame per second 6K video. Um, I don't know why I made those all sixes. But OnePlus, the website, is uh, teasing their launch event. And so we've gotten a little bit of information on the OnePlus 11 and also the OnePlus Buds Pro. Now, if I were a really good podcaster and streamer, I would have pulled out my old OnePlus Buds Pro to use as a prop. They're sitting in a cubby right over there. And I could take the time to try and dig them out of that cubby now. I don't really feel that's worth it now. I feel I missed my moment. But the OnePlus Buds Pro were really good earbuds. And it looks like the OnePlus Buds Pro 2 are, are going to be a nice evolution over what I liked on the Buds Pro. So I'm gonna, let me go back into screen share here real quick. And so this is the official OnePlus Cloud 11 launch event, February 7 at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. It means I need to wake up early on February 7 to uh, watch the stream because they're going to be, uh, I'm three hours behind. But the, uh, I'm going to start with the OnePlus Buds Pro because I like what I'm seeing here. <clears throat> so they look really similar to the OnePlus Buds Pro 1. And uh, I, I really like that in terms of hardware, they're detailing that this is going to be a dual driver audio setup. Co-created with Dyn Audio. Um, it looks like it's not a dynamic driver and a balanced arm. I'm not sure what this little circle here is. So I'll be curious to see exactly what, if it's like a dual dynamic driver or if it's some other type of maybe more exotic audio unit. But I'm really happy to see dual driver in another first party earbud. Um, the little pieces and mechanisms that generate vibrations that we register as sound. You can get phenomenal audio quality off of one little mini unit. It's like a little circle and it looks like a tiny miniaturized version of what you would see in a speaker, like a speaker cone with a big magnet. So that's in your earbud. That's a dynamic driver and it's usually attached to some kind of membrane and the magnet gets wiggled by electrical. I'm grossly oversimplifying, but please just kind of go with me on this. Um, that wiggles and the, vi the, the membrane that it's attached to wiggles and what the magnet is made out of and what the membrane is made out of contributes to the quality of the sound that you hear. You can get incredible audio quality off of one little dynamic driver. You sometimes need to spend a bit more and sometimes those materials can get really exotic, but really that's tuning that isn't phenomenally difficult. We can then add multiple vibrating things inside an earbud chassis that can contribute to different frequencies of sound. So maybe you want to use the dynamic driver for a certain tier of sound. Fre like maybe you want that to focus on low frequency because it's a larger surface area. And then you can use a smaller driver to articulate your mids and your highs. And that's a pretty common sort of delineation of duties. Um, it's why I think sound cores sound so good. They are super consumer, boomy bass earbuds. And 
they have a hybridized dynamic driver and balanced arm that I think drive that really, really, really well. Um, there are all kinds of other different solutions. Uh, you can go multiple, like significantly more multiple dynamic and balanced arms. I've got C16s. They have eight drivers per ear and each driver is responsible for very specific articulation of frequency response. Um, I always have them in arm's reach. These are my Odyssey Euclid. Um, they're a little messy right now, so I'm not going to worry about the camera focusing on them to any great degree, or maybe I'll try and get them to focus. No, my camera's not going to do it. Anyway, they've got ear schmutz all over them, so you probably don't want to see that anyway, but this is a, uh, um, a planar magnetic earbud. Adore the audio on this. They're also ridiculously expensive for a pair of earbuds. So again, we have all these different ways that we can generate sound. It was a really long-winded way of saying seeing a dual driver setup as a first-party solution from OnePlus is encouraging. I, I like seeing them continue on the Buds Pro to offer something that's a little different than, say, a pair of AirPods. AirPods are single-driver earbuds. That is not bad. Single-driver can sound great. But I like how you can articulate different frequencies of sound and how you can tune dual driver and multi-driver earbuds more specifically. That is just a personal preference and plenty of audiophiles will not only disagree with me, but will point to a whole bunch of math and science and acoustics to talk about how that's not completely correct. I'm telling you, I am oversimplifying years of audio reinforcement engineering and acoustical science. <laughs> I'm not... This is not meant to be a deep dive. It's just a personal preference on how I like a consumer earbud to sound and what I prefer in trying to tune it. That took way too long. The other part of this that's probably going to be more interesting to a lot of people is the second little window here on the right. Unparalleled listening experience by Google. Immersive audio, effortless pairing. So... It seems, based on the press release that I've gotten, because OnePlus sent out a press release, and they are publicly showing this graphic here. It's a woman with OnePlus buds in her ears, and it looks like she's in this bubble of sound with sound waves coming from multiple directions. It looks to me like OnePlus is going to be the second company to start utilizing the built-in Android support for spatial audio. Hey, podcast listeners. I work really hard to find mutually beneficial ways to support production on my various distribution platforms. Instead of just running ads on this podcast and hoping they don't annoy you, I want to find products or services that you really will get something out of and that can help fund my production. While I do talk about some of those items in ads throughout this podcast, I've never created one easy-to-view master list of my current partnerships until now. Sorry, I couldn't help myself. If you'd like to help contribute, support production of this podcast and my various videos and reviews, head on over to SomeGadgetGuy.com. At the top, there's going to be a link for Support Some Gadget Guy, and you can see what my current partnerships are. At the time this podcast was recorded, in addition to my Patreon, we can hook you up with a $10 voucher for shopping a new OnePlus, save 20% on some one more headphones, sign you up for Google Fi service, Amazon affiliate links, Audible, 
or you can grab a Mega Pickle coffee mug of your very own. Mmm, mmm, savory, delicious Mega Pickles. Head on over to SomeGadgetGuy.com support banner on the top right-hand side of my website, and hopefully you find something cool, something you like, while also kicking me a little extra scratch. Google did it first with the Google Buds, or the Pixel Buds, excuse me, um, hashtag uh, Team Pixel. Um, it looks like OnePlus is going to be joining Google with support for that directly. So where Samsung is going more proprietary with their Galaxy Buds, like if you want the bestest high-res audio experience, you have to pair your Galaxy Buds with a Galaxy phone. The Galaxy Buds will not support that high-res audio playback on another brand of phone. OnePlus isn't making or licensing their own spatial audio it looks like they're going to be using the sort of standard Android version of that, which should hopefully help flesh out Google's audio processing across all of Android. So as new phones come out and new versions of Android come out on those new phones, we should at least have one flavor of spatial audio that we can all rely on. And then there can be little other flavors and permutations and other codecs or if someone wants to get a little more boutique or a little more exotic. That's kind of a cool hook, especially for an earbud that I'm hoping is going to stay at a similar price undercutting the AirPods Pro. The OnePlus earbuds might end up being one of the better AirPod Pro competitors, at least for the start of 2023. I've been playing with the NeuroTrue that's running Qualcomm's newest flavor of Aptex HD and Aptex Lossless. I still love my Bear Dynamics. These are the Freebirds. These are the Battery Life Champs. Great ANC, but very, very good, like mellow, consumer-flavored sound quality. Um, I just had the JBLs. Where are the JBLs? The JBLs, which have their own separate USB-C plug so that you can... Oh, sorry, I just snapped that right by the microphone. Um, so that you can um, do low latency, almost zero latency gaming playback. So now we've got a couple different flavors and a couple different solutions that are better targeted for someone's tastes. And on top of all of this, you can go and get like a Bluetooth DAC, like my BTR7, and plug in some exotic earbuds like my Odyssey Euclid, and this is like the premier audiophile music listening solution for wireless. Um, or, or, oh, where is it? Do I not have it on my desk? Oh no! Oh, it's over here. <laughs> I had it plugged into another phone. Um, this is my iFi Griffin, um, which is also a premium, super great DAC amp Bluetooth solution too. So Fio and iFi have been doing phenomenal battle with like audiophile grade portable uh, audio equipment. <sighs> So uh, that's definitely something I think we should take a look at. We should keep our eye on for, uh, for this launch, February 7. Uh, One, but One Plus Buds Pro 2 is a mouthful, and I hate it, uh, the name of the product. But um, I, I've had really positive experiences with One Plus Audio going all the way back to their neckbands. I still have a pair of One Plus Bullets that charge and work great. Multi-driver, great ANC, like... Across the way, OnePlus has managed to keep up with some really good consumer audio. And if they're 
adopting a Google standard for spatial audio and they're maintaining support for dual driver, good ANC. Um, they've got really fun features like uh, just sort of background noise. Like if you just want like ambient water, stream, creek, river trickle water sounds, or if you want like kind of floating ambient forest sounds, like you can use your earbuds just to kind of block out what's going on around you. Um, some really, really good stuff. Some really good stuff. Uh, Brian Glaze is asking, did you ever try the Bud Z? Um, I did the OnePlus Buds. Oh, which ones did I do? I did the Bud Z, but I didn't try the OnePlus Bud Z 2. So I've done the Bud Z and the Buds Pro. I haven't done the Nord Buds or the Bud Z 2. I think that's all they sell. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, I try to keep up with all of the companies and all the different things that they make. That's just from memory. <laughs> I can't. Yeah. I, I, I've only tried two of their last generation earbuds. I haven't kept up with some of their newer low, low cost options in part because I was doing so many earbud reviews on things like Earfun and Edifier and One More. The One More Buds are so good right now. Uh, I was really ratcheting up ear infections across all of 2022. So um, I, I have to slow that down. And, and increasingly, when I review earbuds, they're going to be written reviews now. I can't dedicate all of the time and energy and effort to making them videos Unless something really special happens that I can kind of comment on, um, earbuds are now going to be exclusively written on somegadgetguy.com. Um, uh, I still, oh, McCorkran, I still love my pair of wireless Z. I got them for 30 bucks. One of the most convenient things I own. They don't have multi-point, but the quick pairing button is so fast it's almost as good. That's someone else did that. And I want to say it was either... I think it was Bear Dynamic, where they don't have true multi-point, but they have this insanely fast quick connect, where if you, if the Buds remembers the host, you go into the host and you tap pair, and it's f almost as fast as like that first time quick repair kind of connection. I think it was Bear Dynamic. I might have to look that up now. It might have been a one more. But multi-point, that's another figure. I, I hope we'll see on the uh, the OnePlus Buds Pro 2. Um, again, just their support for things like LHDC has been really interesting. Their, uh, the build quality was really nice on the Buds Pro. Sound quality was very good. It could be a good add-on. You, If you're considering shopping this hot new OnePlus 11... Look at this, this new Hasselblad OnePlus launch event. It, I'm hoping there are some good bundles and incentives to also tack on a pair of these Buds Pro too, Because um, the Buds Pro did impress. I liked those earbuds. I just want to see real quick. Uh, they have some images for the, the all-new OnePlus 11 5G. Witness the shape of power. And it's the OnePlus 11 5G with Hasselblad. Seeing that camera module on the back of the phone... And it goes into light speed because it's the camera that went to space. And then uh, the alert slider is on the OnePlus 11. So that's going to be great. The return of an icon where you can mute your phone sounds. So we know that's going to be coming back. Um, I wanted to highlight one rumor article. 
that's here. This is coming by way of Android Police. The global OnePlus 11 won't charge as fast as its Chinese sibling. So we have detailed this rumor as a negative. And again, we'll have to see what happens because this, this happens a lot like um, internationally uh, distributed Xiaomi products often ship with a 65 watt charger where they'll support 80 or 100 watts, sometimes 120 watts in China. Like my uh, Xiaomi 12S Ultra shipped with a 65 watt charger. I believe that phone can handle 80 watt charging. Someone please correct me if I'm totally off. Um, Here, let me get this uh, scrolling down here. So I want to go back to the article. This is Android Police. Um, the, The OnePlus 11 was officially unveiled in China this month. Uh, confirming many of the leaks and rumors we've been hearing. They're talking about all the specs and the battery. And in China, the OnePlus 11 charges at 100 watts. So instead of 100 watts, the international OnePlus 11 model will only support 80-watt SuperVOOC charging, according to at SnoopyTech on Twitter. While indeed a step down from 100 watts, OnePlus's proprietary 80-watt charging has proven to be a plenty fast option for topping up your phone in less than 40 minutes, which is still way quicker than most of the top Android flagships that take power delivery chargers. So I just want to highlight this, because if you're that person who just knee-jerk reacts to the headlines in your articles, you look at that and you're like, oh man, one bust does it again. OnePlus just can't do anything right. They're saving a special version of their phone for China, and everyone else is going to get garbage. Boy, howdy, no one likes OnePlus. They fail all the time. Better just get a Samsung, because it's going to be better. 80-watt charging is going to be roughly three times faster at topping off a 5,000 mAh battery than anything Samsung has put out in the market on Galaxy Ultra phones. 80-watt charging is going to be the fastest charging standard in North America. The second fasting charging standard shipping directly to North America will be a Motorola with 67-watt charging. And the third fastest charging standard in North America is going to be another OnePlus with 65-watt charging. Apple and Samsung aren't even on the list with like 30 watt fast charging. Samsung's top charging spec is 40 watts and a Galaxy Ultra can't even really support 40 watt charging. It usually scales it back down to like 25 to 30 watt charging depending on how you measure the output of a charger. So I really feel like you could change this headline and have the exact same article, but with the positive spin of OnePlus 11 set to launch in America with fastest charging available to the United States. And it would be exactly the same article. You could point out, like, yeah, the Chinese version is going to get a faster charger, but this is still the best. (laughs) So, you know, all, all all that ire for one bust. Um... I feel like consumers would probably want to know, like, hey, my phone's running low, and I need to leave in 10 minutes, and I plug my phone in, and it's almost full in 10 minutes. (laughs) It's kind of a big perk. Like, it's not something you can do on an iPhone, even with, like, iPad chargers. It's not going to charge that fast, and it charges 
a lot cooler than trying to force more wattage through power delivery. Oh, wait a minute. What did the OnePlus 9T charge at? Was that a 100-watt charger? Is the 9T the fastest? Did I just mess that up? Let me see if I can... I'm still on the OnePlus website. Let me go to phones. One, oh, sorry, OnePlus 10T, not the 9T. The 10T specs. Go to the specs. And camera and performance and connectivity and buttons and... Where's the charging? Or is that going to be under performance? 125 watt. Okay, so the OnePlus 10T is the fastest charger in North America. The OnePlus 11 will be the second fastest charger in North America. The Motorola Edge Plus will be the third fastest. And then the other 65 watt OnePluses will be the fourth fastest, fourth through 10th fastest charging phones. So the 9, you're right, PP Joker, the 9 was a 65 watt charger. Because those are a bunch of the chargers that I've got around the house are the OnePlus 65 watt with 45 watt power delivery chargers. Those chargers are awesome. If you don't do anything else with OnePlus, buy one of their power delivery supported chargers. They're PD chargers. You can charge Chromebooks. You can charge sort of uh, consumer grade laptops. I charge my Surface, uh, my Surface Pro 9. I don't use the Microsoft charger that often because I just have 65 watt, 45 watt power delivery chargers all over the house. (laughs) Thanks to the OnePlus 8 and the OnePlus 9. They're great. Um, I don't know that this new charger is going to have the power delivery support the same. I'll have to look into that. That's actually one of the things I want to know when this phone actually launches, is will it still support that 45-watt power delivery and give us 80-watt SuperVOOC would be pretty sweet. It'd be disappointing if we don't have that. Whew. All right. Um, Do-do-do. So from McCorkran, I just pretty much charge my phone whenever it's convenient and try to keep it mostly charged most of the time. Good luck with long-term battery. My 4A G8X still have like 90% battery health and they're two and a half years old. I think of a phone battery like a gas tank, the closer it is to fully charged, the better. I know this is controversial and hotly debated. I think everyone has their own feelings on what they should use or what they should want. Um, I, I just feel like it's silly to complain about 80 watt charging in a market where the top two players can't really support half that charge speed because I can always charge a OnePlus slower. I can pull out a Samsung charger and charge my OnePlus phenomenally slow. (laughs) Just let it take all the time it needs to top off that phone because Samsung chargers suck and I hate them. But when I need it, I can't charge a Galaxy Ultra, which costs hundreds of dollars more than what I think the launch price of the OnePlus 11 is going to be. I can't charge a Galaxy any faster. So that anxiety of being away from a charger is almost non-existent on a OnePlus. My OnePlus 10, I've got my OnePlus 10 Pro here. It's like 15 minutes. If I can find 10 minutes to keep a cable connected to this phone... I'm good for a day and a night. That's awesome. But if I wanted to kind of, excuse me, 
man, I got those coffee burps. They're awful. But if I want it to, you know, kind of cool off and not charge as aggressive and, and actually even at its hottest charging speed, it's not warmer than charging 45 Watts on a galaxy. You're charging so much faster, but with a more efficient charging proprietary solution. Um, but if I want, I can trickle charge it on my car charger. That's fine. I can do that too. It's cake. Um, I can't flip that script and get an iPhone to charge any faster and not be screaming hot at the same time. So, yeah, a PP Joker. If I want a slow charger, I'll take a 5-watt Apple charger. Done. Yeah, I, I, I only have... The only iPhone I still have in-house is the uh, 2020 iPhone SE. And I somehow managed to have four or five of those little Apple charging bricks just over the years have accumulated in this office. I genuinely don't know where they came from. <laughs> like, they just sort of multiply on their own. It's, it's like a asexual reproduction of e-waste Apple chargers, which is hilarious. Um, yeah, Brian, I completely agree. It is immensely silly to complain about OnePlus's charging when the other big names can't even compete in the same stratosphere. So how dare OnePlus? Aren't we so upset? The OnePlus in China is going to charge 20 watts faster than the OnePlus here in the United States. What a fail. <laughs> I, I have written a negative headline to OnePlus's business strategy in the, in the United States. Give me the clicks. I need the OnePlus outrage. They betrayed me. They were only good when they were $200 phones. Clicks. I want flagship killers. Give me the clicks. Uh, it's so it's so funny. <laughs> so uh, I think that's where we should wrap it up. I ran a little long, and my voice is is actively starting to uh, uh, to kind of fuzz out on me here. Um, February seven, uh, we're gonna we're gonna get the full scoop on everything that OnePlus is gonna do. Uh, looking forward to that. Um, I, I, uh, I'm going to have some fun stuff coming out this week. I think I'm finally going to be able to finish up a, uh, a sort of a long-term test drive on the Surface Pro 9. And spoiler alert, I have mostly positive things to say about that experience. And I'm going to have some cranky uh, reactions to all the people that act like you can't do anything on Windows on ARM, which is dumb. Uh, what else do I... Uh, oh, that's right. Next week, I want to, um, I, I, I almost forgot. Next week is the last Monday of the month. So we're back on our regular schedule. Next week is going to be a pajama podcast. And I'd kind of like to chat some movies and some music and some TV shows, anything that you guys and gals and tech nerds are watching um, or listening to. So let's make this kind of an open, broad conversation on just like catching up on streaming stuff, catching up on some movies. I got, got a lot you know, that I'm, I'm trying to, uh, kind of mark off our checklist. Finally got to see Top Gun. It was boomers save young people from bad guys. And it was a fun movie. You know, that's, that's cool. Did feel really kind of back padding. I want to use a more serious word about self-pleasuring. Um, but it did feel kind of back padding like, Oh, th these young kids today can't do things that us old folks can do. And you're like, well, yeah, that's your fault because you didn't train them to do that. So that's on you. <laughs> you need your own participation trophy. I feel like Gen Z, they're going to be fine. They're, they're going to be fine without you once we move on, generationally speaking. That was a loaded 
emotional reaction to Top Gun Maverick right there. Um, so, <laughs> and the last thing I want to point out, okay, we only got like a minute, a minute or two here, so I really need you to, to, to focus on, on the comments here right now. Uh, NVIDIA has updated their broadcast software to do um, eye reorienting, Okay. So NVIDIA is what I use to do this like slight camera panning. So, you know, like my, my frame kind of moves around and I turned it on for this podcast just to see if anyone would notice or freak out about it. But like right now I am not looking at the camera right now. I am looking at my monitor and the NVIDIA software has cut my eyes and has reoriented them to look at the, uh, at the camera. I think this effect is really freaky. This is like uncanny valley, unsettling. I've been making so much eye contact with the camera in this podcast that it does not look natural to me. Because I've been reading off articles and looking at the chat and looking at you know different sides of my monitor and it keeps like popping and wiggling my eyes around. Like you can kind of see, see like look, look what happens. I am I'm looking at the same place and it, flicks my eyes from my monitor back to the camera. That is weirding me out. <laughs> this is so... Uh, like, it's, it's giving me that kind of squirrely, prickly feeling in, in my nether regions, but not in a good way. Not in an earbud kind of way, like in a, oh, I for one welcome our future robot overlords <laughs> when they take over the planet. So, uh, if anyone has any thoughts on that, you know, if it was distracting to you, please let me know. If you didn't notice at all, also, please let me know. Hit me up on somegadgetguy.com, hit the comments, or, uh, you know, uh, catch me on social media or any other places there. I just want to point it out here now at the end of this podcast, because I ran it the whole show, and no one mentioned anything on it. And, uh, boy, howdy, is it weird to see my face as I'm looking at my monitor, looking directly back at me. Oh, and look at what happens when, when I block one eye. <laughs> oh, that is so weird. Oh, I hate that so much. <laughs> oh, that's so gross. It's like someone's like scooping my eyeballs and moving them around. <laughs> so... Uh, on that note, uh, oh, Dustadori, the name of the JBL buds, JBL Quantum, uh, their Quantum line at JBL is their gaming line. Um, and I haven't tried their other gaming headsets. Go to somegadgetguy.com and I've got a full review written up on the JBL uh, Quantum buds. I like them a lot. They're boomy and bassy, but that low latency USB-C puck is awesome. So folks, I want you all to have an amazing week. I want you to do awesome with your technology. I want you to be awesome with your technology. Catch the whole crew of people who are streaming. We've got Gadget Goddess. We've got uh, Tech for Your Needs. We've got Barry Johnson, LaShawn, Easy Computer Solutions. Uh, I don't know if Michael Peppertech is gonna be uh, getting back into his uh, sort of rotation of interviews and streams. Uh, El Jefe Reviews is usually on Sundays. Um, me and TK will probably be streaming together. Ike Talks Tech. I mean, we've got so many great shows every single day of the week to have some really fun tech conversations. So folks, uh, be safe, take care, take care of yourselves, 
so that you can also take care of others. I'll catch you back here next week for another episode of the Monday Morning Tech Chat Show on the SGGQA podcast channel. Be safe, take care. I love y'all. And I'll catch you back. And now I'm not looking at the computer screen. I mean, I am looking at the computer screen. I'm not looking at the camera. (gasps) Recording voiceover, spoken word, is truly one of my favorite activities. My second favorite hobby is photography. Now, the smartphone might be making us deaf, but we can't deny the awesome power of the phone as a platform for photography and multimedia creation. If you've been looking to improve your mobile photog skills, if you want to produce more professional content, or you're just looking to take your family photos to the next level, I wrote a book to help you out with that. Take Better Photos, Smartphone Photography for Noobs is available on Amazon Kindle. Walking through the basic terminology of photography, covering the settings on your camera, discussing composition and inspiration, and I even include a long list of exercises and challenges to really hone your skills, all with some helpful example photos and diagrams. Search for Take Better Photos, Smartphone Photography for Noobs on Amazon, or use the quick link bit.ly slash betterphotosbook to grab your copy today.